everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I've got two very special guests for you today, tied together by magic, literally. First up is my friend Gordon Prince, who joined Warner Brothers in the entertainment industry 20 years ago, the last eight years serving as Vice President Content Management and Distribution. Gordon has been responsible for global inventory and ordering systems, an Emmy award-winning digital supply chain solution, studio-wide digital asset management solutions, master data management solutions, and even WB's first direct-to-consumer customer support for entertainment offers and redemptions. Gordon hails from Katy, Texas, still appreciates a good barbecue joint in Longhorn football, of course, but has made Los Angeles' home for the last 20 years. On the weekends, you can find Gordon around town watching one of his four sons play baseball, basketball, or soccer. Or in the evenings, you may spot him at the world-famous Magic Castle in Hollywood, where Gordon likes to enjoy his lifelong passion for magic. Second, we've got Brad Glassman, who's born and raised in Los Angeles, been in the entertainment industry going on 30 years, and has been with the Walt Disney Company most recently for the last 18. As a broadcast technical specialist, Brad is a third generation in the entertainment industry, starting with his grandfather, who's a professional carny. For the last seven years, Brad's been focused on global administration, support, and continuity. Brad has defined many standards for the platforms used by his division at Disney and its clients and has been the primary administration for continuity there. He's somewhat of a thrill seeker in his spare time, including flying ultralights, scuba, and skydiving. He also enjoys attending sporting events, concerts, the arts, cooking, and traveling. Thank you very much for taking time out to join us today, Gordon. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tom. It's it's my pleasure to be here. You've got Mr. Brad Glassman, born and raised in LA. That's a rare breed, not many of you out there. These guys um, have pretty different hobbies, except for one, which is really interesting. So in the course of doing the job that I've been doing for the last 20 years, I've met a lot of interesting people. Gordon and Brad are both members and um, specifically members that uh, participate by actually performing magic at uh, the famous Magic Castle in Hollywood, which is currently, I think, um, operating at very low slash no capacity. Um due to the pandemic, but yeah, who knew that these guys were working, you know, probably less than five miles from each other. And, uh, and they were both members the whole time. And I don't think you guys had ever met before. Right. I don't don't look so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We probably were even at the magic cast at the same time, but no, I, I, I don't think Brad and I, this brought us together. So that's, what's wonderful about doing things like a podcast, right? Absolutely. It makes the world a little smaller. So um, obviously we are, we're going to talk about computers a little bit because that's what we're here to do. But um, before we get started, I have one question for each of you, uh, starting with you, Brad, which is what is the magic trick routine? Again, I don't know the correct terminology here. Okay. I'm an, I'm a, an amateur, but like, what is, what is the most difficult uh trick slash is that what you call it trick routine what do you call it or or tricks or effects illusions whatever you want to call it okay so yeah what is your favorite illusion um slash like most difficult that you've learned while you remember at the magic castle probably the rubber bands putting two rubber bands through each other because you have to do the sleight of hand slow enough where they think they're catching everything but smooth enough where they don't see when the magic moment happens it's all delivery. Gordon, what about you? I saw a video of you doing some kind of four coin sleight of hand thing the other day. That was very cool. Yeah, definitely coin magic, I think, is the most difficult. I mean, 
most magicians start off with a deck of cards. Uh, unfortunately, that's why some people are sick of them. But uh, you bring in other apparatus like a rubber band or something, you get more interest. And coins are so difficult because there's only so much you can do with them physically and they make noise. You know, so one right. thing I always have to remember is to take off my wedding band. Sometimes people hear that and they just hear the clink of one coin against the wedding band. Like, wait, you know, I'm on to something. You know, so I have to remember to, to have naked fingers when I when I do it and then not have the coins talk when they shouldn't to each other. Got it. Who knew? Let's get started here. So you both have obviously got like a long story career in entertainment. I've known you both for a very long time. Uh, there's no way we could ever even scratch the surface of what you guys know and, and what you've learned. But, you know, obviously current events being what they are, uh, you know, we all were kind of headed in the same direction for a very long time. And there was a pretty sharp turn there. So um, I know you both were involved in relatively big organizations. So starting with you, Gordon, I wanted to find out, um, tell me when the whole recent uh, everyone must work from home, COVID-19 turn of events happened, what surprised you most? Or was there anything you learned uh, from that that you didn't know before? Yeah, I mean, you know, Warner Brothers is a very um, uh, old company. It's been there around almost 100 years and has a rich history. And so I think certain things that have been adopted by startups, you know, they're slow to adopt. And one of them was work from home. We had got to the point where they had a program where a person with management approval could pick one day a week where they could work from home. And we went from that kind of a uh, policy and situation where overnight everyone was working from home. And um, I think it it just showed how, uh, you know, certain things that people are resistant or fearful of when you're forced to do it overnight, it was like, this is fine. You know, there's a lot of work that can still be done very effectively remotely. You know, some people that are already more individual contributors actually become more productive when you allow them to work from home. Sure. But, uh, but then other types of important collaboration and stuff becomes more difficult. So, uh, so I'd say uh, that's the probably the most groundbreaking change i'd say it's just how we work the other thing that's clear when you read about it is even when people go back in the office which we won't before june of next year they've already said um you know the exception being production and things that have to be done together the office will never look the way it did you know we'll, we'll never go back to the office we knew yeah there was a guy that uh i interviewed a couple of weeks ago that said now that the cat is out of the bag Right. And I think it is true, like for places that have never really allowed large amounts of remote work because necessity is the mother of invention. Now we know it's at least hypothetically possible. So it'll be interesting to see what does that look like long term. Brad, how about you? What surprised you most or what did you learn? You stole my line. I was going to say <laughs> learned that necessity truly, as you said, is the mother of invention. And luckily, working for Disney we keep most of our infrastructure current. The biggest things we had to do was we had to pivot because like Gordon was saying, working remotely, that brings up whole new issues. We have to provide real-time streams for media, for production and post-production. Luckily, like I said, we have the infrastructure, but the big concerns were really, I'd say, security as far as anything getting out or also security as far as whether it's viruses or otherwise, anything coming in. So that's something that we really had. Yeah, that's interesting you know, how, on. I mean, both of you, obviously, from time to time, the team, various teams that you work with handle pre-release content, right? And it's like, I think at some point we had to take the leap of faith that it's only, if it's only 99.99% secure, that's going to have to be good enough, right? Because if the alternative is 
can't work with the content at all. So follow-up question to that. And uh, Brad, let's start with you this time. So now that the cat's out of the bag, right? Now that we know that things are going to be different, you know, and again, I won't hold you to it. We're all just, this is just wild speculation, but like, how do you think that affects this sort of, you know, especially for you, you know, this big on-premise, you know, uh, working culture. How do you think that might play out as people do start to come back? What do you think the long-term effects will look like? I don't think it'll ever return back to what we considered mm-hmm. normal before. I think as far as anyone who's who's not required to be on site, if possible, they will continue working from home and being allowed to for a lot longer than expected. Um, we're not expected to return back to the studio lot until at least mm-hmm. March, probably even longer further out. Uh, so I think that it's not going to be the same. And I think it'll also end up saving uh, a lot of money for the different companies as well, because now you don't have to have the physical space for the people. So it's uh, going to change the entire. Yeah. I'm wondering if the kind of the web hosting or oversubscription model will work. So let's say, right. You have this hypothetical hundred thousand employees and you needed a hundred thousand desks. I wonder if moving forward, you could do it with Mm 66,000 desks. Assuming that people are only going to work from there like 66%. The other thing that might, and I've always, it's funny, I'm a very on premise guy. I've always liked to have everybody together because I believe, especially in a small organization, in person collaboration is key. But uh, conversely, I've always felt like, why are people so tied to their individual workspace, right? Which is my office, you know, my desk. And one of the things that happens if there's some oversubscription is maybe we start to get decoupled, right? Because if we can work from home, you've heard this term like work from anywhere, then it should be like that when you're in the office too, right? But And on top of that, with um, people being able to work, most of the people in my division are working from their office. They're not having to go visit the clients directly. We could re- remote into systems. So the difference between working from home or working from their office right. is just the physical yeah. location and the connectivity. Gordon, what do you think? What do you think the taking a wild guess, what do you think the future looks like for, you know, office culture? I think you guys are spot on. I mean, some changes are already happening. Uh, Warner Brothers, um, you can read about it. They have a fancy architected building they're working on before the pandemic started called the Second Century Project, where they were consolidating some of their just off lot real estate. And so it's a really cool looking uh, uh, building from that architect that makes buildings that seem to be askew and, and leaning in different directions. But, you know, looking at the mock-ups and how they're going to do it, it was really going to be a very high density office. And I don't think you're going to see them fill it out in the same way. I agree with Brad. They're going to they're going to start supporting people working from home as the norm, not the exception. And the exception will be coming into the office for those uh, face-to-face things. Uh, I think people can be really productive from home, but what is not as effective from home is building new relationships, onboarding new employees. You know, so that's what I also think is tough is, you know, you send everybody home in the first three months, it's like no impact. But as things change or these people roll off or, you know, and you would try to make changes, I think building that team, uh, you know, those team bonds and that high effectiveness is a little more challenging through screens. Um, uh, but I think I think it is here to stay. And so uh, the other trend that I think will begin to happen is people that don't live where the office is, you know, uh, already uh, in the time at, at Warren Brothers during this, some people are like, hey, I'm in Boston, I'm going to be here three months because we're 
permanently remote and I've wanted to be here, you know, and uh, which is something I'm excited about because one challenge I had is LA is an expensive place to live. And a lot of people that are born in LA, they move, you know, they, they go to school and they think, you know, I'm going to go get a job over here, over there, you know, my money will go farther. So it's not always easy when you're trying to grow or hire people to do it in the LA area. This is going to, uh, you know, allow people to work in technology from a lot of different places. And I think it's going to open the, uh, the resource pool. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it will enable people who have a job somewhere to move and not change jobs. And it will also probably for, you know, from the corporate side, I think it'll improve. It'll also be interesting to see how does that uh, affect big fortune 500 companies will actually have like an adjustment, a salary adjustment based on cost of living. And like, what does that look like long-term? Oh, and and the last thing I'll add on this topic, uh, Brad's completely right about cost savings. I think now that people have seen the bottom line of, of, Pulling back on real estate. Actually, when I started in LA, I was selling copiers in my territory is Glendale. In the industrial area, almost every door I knocked on was an unmarked Disney building. And I was like, what? You know, so I mean, right. studios have known for a long time that real estate in Los Angeles is expensive. And if you can move people to other areas, it's a way to save. Well, now you can actually eliminate the space altogether. And that'll be a huge savings that I think this it'll be hard for the studio to not embrace. And an interesting effect on residential real estate, because normally, you know, if, if one goes out with their family to find a house, they've got whatever hobbies or maybe one person works from home, but two parents working from home with young kids. I mean, I would say an individual person's real estate, an individual family's rather real estate uh, requirements are going to increase by at least 25 or 30%, right? I mean, because, you know, we all know that working in your bedroom for the next 10 years is not the answer. You know, some, some of us may have to do it now because of real estate decisions we made before all this happened. But long term, if any of us was looking for a new place, you'd want to have enough real estate to do like all these activities, which then leads you back to the fact that I think everybody knows LA real estate is very expensive. I'm not going to speculate on whether it's overpriced, but it's certainly not affordable, right? So yeah, then you guys have the internet. We've all looked at how much it would cost to live in Texas, for example. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, um, wow, I could have a much bigger house there. So yeah, I wonder what that looks like. And probably depends on the type of uh, job that one is doing, right? I mean, it, it, the lots, you know, somebody still needs to do the dishes and satellite dishes. I mean, you know, pull, pull cables and, you know, in, go into the data center. So, I mean, I think there's always going to be some kind of need for the physical plant. Turning the corner a little bit, if we uh, stop top, talking about uh, this unprecedented time for a minute, which is good, I'm sure we can all use a break from that. Tell me, um, Gordon, what on the roadmap, technology roadmap, not COVID related, are you excited about, you know, current trends, things coming out in the next few years? Well, it's actually something uh, Disney's pioneered most famously, and that's the uh, virtual production that they've done on Mandalorian. Um, you know, some of you may already be following it. There's some good YouTube videos from Unreal. There's also, uh, if you have Disney Plus, and it seems like 70 million of us do, uh, <laughs> then there's a good behind the scenes, one episode dedicated to this uh, technology. But it's really interesting because it takes a lot of trends that are already there, game engines and real-time rendering, um, the increasing size and uh, affordability of LED panels, uh, motion capture, and these kinds of things that we're already using in movies and brings them all into this ability to film um, in a virtual, uh, you know, in a virtual environment. And what's and it's more than just like a green screen or a backdrop, because not only do you have the real time vista or 
effects for the actors to see, which means they're not acting in, you know, you know, it's more like a holodeck for them and less like they're acting in some sort of weird green thing. But the, the technology is such that the camera is, is the focus of the rendering. So as the camera moves around the parallax that should be happening in the background is accurate. And when you watch it, you just can't even tell where the screen is or the, you know, the set. So, you know, this is not cheap technology, but it's already cheaper than the way we were filming movies, you know, as most technology is, you know, you know, digital film cameras were expensive, but they were still cheaper than film. And so I think this will disrupt things a lot. And I think it will change what I do a lot. You know, it's going to create different assets, uh, you know, that have to be maintained, different different streams of data. Um, but, but no, that's the thing I think that's going to not only change how we make content, but I could see, you know, you bring the low version of this tech of... Um, you know, walls that can dynamically change by what's going on in the room. You know, an augmented reality experience has already been on the horizon, but I think the vehicle hasn't, you know, it's not Google Glass yet. It's not, people don't want to have their eyes covered with the big Oculus, but I think this, the ability to calculate on the fly and screens and entertainment and immersive experiences is going to continue to progress forward. Yeah, that's interesting. I saw a demonstration about a year and a half ago of live concert technology very similar to what you're talking about so the background there are trackers that i think they have to wear something but the performer has stuff that's tracking them and as they move the background is dynamically changing and it's because you're in a big venue it can be kind of low resolution and because of the sort of you know where you're looking at the feel where you're looking from um, it looks really really awesome so it's cool that i and when i was looking at it i was thinking yeah, but if if you were right up against this, it probably wouldn't look very good. Um, so it sounds like there's been some significant evolution there. Brad, how about you? What are you most excited about that's coming out soon? Well, similar to Gordon, you know, everything that he said, plus the fact that, you know, everyone wants better image quality, you know, 1K, 4K, 8K, you know, the speed of the throughput, the technology, the software. It's all real time. And it's not like you see a green screen line around you where you're matted out or anything like that. And it looks so accurate. And you could also have various effects making your talent look, you know, older, younger, what have you. And like I said, it's all in real time. So that's just intriguing to me. And I'm looking forward to seeing what other advancements that we haven't even thought of yet will come out of this. So, and in in addition to that, honestly, I'm also looking forward to you know, what happens with the uh, the atom- autonomous oh, yeah. cars, vehicles. Now, that's not out of, that's not out of uh, the pandemic or anything, but that's something interesting, exciting, and potentially a little scary, but I'm yeah, anxious to I'm see. I'm terrified. I'm going to drive myself until it's all over. I'm not, I don't want to get into any autonomous cars. Well, I look forward to the economics of that, Brad, where uh, I'm ready. I have one car that basically its sole purpose was to take me to and from the office. If I could walk out of my house every day and just get into a vehicle through a service and uh, not own that vehicle, I'd be more than happy to just yeah. have it. I mean, I lease my work car anyway because I it's, I want it reliable. I just want it to serve that function. So I, I think that will be really interesting when everybody doesn't own a huge depreciating asset that just spends most of its time in their driveway. All it's time these days for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the bird scooter of cars, right? That, so I don't have a car right now. My lease was up and I couldn't justify buying a new car. So I took the car back. Yeah. My spouse has a car. So I have a car if I really need one. I have to, 
you know, talk to the rest of the team about when it's available, but she's, she's only commuting to work like one day a week. So we have excess car capacity, but yeah, I mean, if we could get to the point where there was like, you know, a hypervisor for cars, right. Where it was like, there were a certain number of cars available, a certain number of people that needed to use car cycles. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge with that, I've thought about this a lot, right. Is, um, how would we handle the parking? Right, because there's need so parking. Many. Well, but the car the car would have to be somewhere in between uses, and cities make so much of their revenue from parking, right? So I'll give you an example. So let's say I take the car to the grocery store. I come home. Well, I do this with the bird scooter. So I jog to the grocery store, but I can't jog back with the groceries, right? So I buy the groceries. I rent one of those bird scooters, and I, I bird home. Then I leave it in front of my house, and then some nice person comes by literally in the middle of the night in a big white van and puts a scooter in there, I guess. I don't know, you know, Yeah. but the scooter doesn't really take up any real estate from a parking perspective. But if a car was parked there, well, if it's autonomous, it could just move on, you know, oh, and, you, and, you, and you have to have enough cars too, that they could be kind of rotating. Cause eventually a car would have to say, it's time for me to drive back to some abandoned train station where there's a thousand chargers that, you know, that charged me back up and then I re-enter the, the pool. But no, there was a great article that I didn't know this, but a lot of cities have requirements that for every bit of real estate you build, you have to build so much parking. Yeah. And it's kind of like subsidizing the car industry. And and they gave these numbers. I'd have to find out. I don't want to misquote on how much expensive real estate would become free if nobody needed to park a car. They also said in all your major cities, 20 to 30% of the downtown traffic is actually just people circling for a parking Looking for a parking space. Yeah. You know, but if you could just hop out of your autonomous car and go wherever, just, you know, go wherever the cars hang out, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. then you could reclaim that space, you know. And I don't foresee parking ever being an issue because the more we do car sharing or renting, the less total cars there are, the less cars individual. Yeah. For example, at our, um, we reconfigured our office because the lease on that was also up in the middle of this. So we were able to find some efficiencies there, but our previous real estate model, over 20% of just rent payments, right? So just if you take the rent on the space and the rent on the parking, over 20% of it was rent, not counting the budget we had for visitor parking, which was also like one, two thousand dollars a month, you know, depending on how much it got used. But right. like staggering. Like the idea that if we didn't and based on where we were, I was trying to work out the whole train and it just public transportation in LA wasn't where we needed it to be. It's definitely made some big strides. But yeah, if we were at and I actually thought about just totally independently going out and purchasing vehicles so that people could come take the train to the office, use the vehicle as needed, because I was like, okay, there's 20 people here, but at any given time, only three of us are actually in the field. So maybe we could just get three cars and then all get ourselves here anyway. So yeah, once uh, there's software to increase the size of the co-op, the size of the pool, because that was that wasn't a problem we could take on ourselves. But if it was everybody taking it on, it would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think software, you're right. When you look at how to efficiently use, and this ties back to kind of what I was doing at Warner Brothers, you keep looking at how can I have the fewest copies of masters, you know, and, and digital helps do that. But even with digital, you're looking at how do I optimize how I store this, you know, and have the fewest copies and repurpose it on the cheapest storage. I think the car probably the same thing. Software will allow us to get by with a fraction of the cars 
that we would need if we just are uh, winging it. We, you know, it's just kind of the way we do it now. Everybody just has one, you know, and now we've solved the problem. Yeah, and with technology, the hardware and software, the way it's going, it's just like hard drives. They're getting higher in capacity, smaller in footprint, and cheaper per gigabyte. So the I mean, prices are going down. The other thing that would be cool, hear me out, right, is like imagine it was my turn to go to the grocery store, right, and live with my, my significant other. But what if I could go to the grocery store and the car didn't have to have a driver? I could load the groceries up, send that thing home, then get yes. in a different autonomous vehicle and go elsewhere. I've now actually saved like I don't know how much time and miles on the road, right? Because I can go on to my next task. I can send the car home by itself. We don't need a human being to operate it. So I also think it could have some significant effects on like how efficiently households could operate. Well, and I don't think about, I think about that, Tom, and not for groceries, but for my four boys, my, my poor wife, uh, unfortunately, especially for all the practices during the week when I was working, would take that minivan and be dropping everyone off at all these different practices. Even what sports they could play or all-stars or anything is limited by just the logistics of, sure. you know, is there, or can we buddy up with another parent? And if, if you had autonomous where you could trust it, you could have a scenario where, the kid just gets in the vehicle. They have some, you know, secure device on their wrist that allows the vehicle to confirm they've now taken custody of the child, you know, right, right, right. And, and who they are and, and where they are. And you can track it on your phone and they can safely take them, you know, to their next thing or home. And, and it frees up all of that need to to turn a, one parent into like a, a low paid, uh, you know, shuttle service. Sure. Yeah, right. And not to mention if somebody gets sick or something gets delayed or you're coordinating with another parent who's always late. Right. Um, I think I think my family was the family probably that was always late that was holding up the other parent. But, you know, the whole thing of where, yeah, if you can automate some of that, it'd be pretty amazing. Well, not to make a plug for Apple, but that's what we've settled on. And so, you know, the two oldest kids have devices. We have a family calendar, you know, that's uh, you know, iCloud and shared so that as we put things in, my wife and I, now the two oldest, they can see it, you know, and they, or if they don't want to see it, they can ask Siri, you know, what they have going on <laughs> today. <laughs> Siri, will, Siri will tell them, you know, and uh, that's, what's funny too. I have uh, like my, my youngest in school is six and, and he did Montessori preschool and he's, and, and, and kindergarten. So this was going to be his first year, like in a traditional classroom. And he's not, oh, wow. he's instead at the, at a desk in the kitchen you know, right. to do first grade, which uh, bless his heart, he's coming along. But then he has to do all his homework on an iPad, and he would rather sit there and do voice dictation than type. You know, so so he creates these text boxes and does Siri voice dictation um, because that's easier for him than right. than typing on the screen. Whereas you know, I get too frustrated with those. You know, certain- yeah, yeah. We don't even have to worry about spelling anymore. I wonder, will people still learn cursive or is it just over? It's over. They don't teach it anymore. Um, No way. You don't have to learn cursive. None of my sons know how to do it. They know how to read it, but they they don't teach them how to do it. Interesting. Well, I mean, we all learned it in school, but I don't think I used it, honestly, beyond probably junior high was the last time I ever actually used it. Um, Because I certainly wrote things longhand, but not using cursive writing. Well, and I was never, I mean, I had, writing was my worst you know, subject, always sees, you know, in elementary school. So even by junior high, my dad was kind of a computer guy. So I guess it, you know, comes along, but I was using word processors for my papers if they allowed it because I'd rather type and print than, uh, you know, than have to write it out. Yeah. All right. Well, we gotta, we gotta circle back around to work to this magic <laughs> 
to this magic castle thing. Oh, great. We got to talk more about that. So um, I guess how long have you guys been members and what inspired you to join? And tell me about, it sounds like, you know, it's like any kind of club that you join. There's there is a bit of a journey, right, to get to member status. So I don't know, Brad, maybe you want to go first, but tell me what inspired you to join and what was the experience like? I'll make a long story short. <laughs> um, it took about six months to get into the Magic Castle once I decided um, as a magician member. And I had to become a member of a magic circle or magic ring, magic club. Uh, there were two different steps. It's so long ago, I don't remember. But I finally did my audition and either they liked me enough where they said, yeah, you could be a member, or they were desperate enough for my money. One of the two, I haven't figured it out. But I've been a member, and I looked it up. I've been a member there since 1993, so 27 years. All right. Yeah. Um, what inspired me to your question, I used to teach at a college for about four years, and one of my students, his family lived up in Paso Robles, so every other weekend he'd be with his family. Every other weekend, he was staying at his in-laws, but he was a member of the Magic Castle. So I go with him quite often, and they're like, this place is fantastic. It's incredible. How do I become a member? So finally, I pulled the trigger, and I did it. Nice. And Gordon, how about you? Now, you were a, you were a magician before you even moved to L.A., weren't you? It's it's true. Mine's a uh, a different story. First of all, growing up in Texas, I didn't even know what the Magic Castle was. But I remember, uh, you know, two life-changing events. One was seeing, and I want to give a shout out to the wonderful Paul Gertner, who some people, if they follow Magic, might see because he's fooled Penn and Teller twice, and he's been on that a number of times. But Paul Gertner, a magician out of uh, Pittsburgh, he was on Mr. Rogers in 1978. No way. Okay. I saw his, uh, his, he does a routine with cups and balls where he uses steel ball bearings, you know, so back to the coins, they talk. And it blew my mind as a little kid, and I was obsessed. And then later seeing some Copperfield, who was big at the time. And uh, I've always been obsessed with knowing how everything works, you know, which is a good thing for computers. It's also, you know, of all the magic out there, and there's tons of magic in the world, literal magic entertainment is so fun and fascinating, and you see the effect it can have on people. So I was kind of a magic enthusiast until I found my first magic shop in high school. And that's when I really got lost into the world and practicing. And a buddy of mine who still has quite an online presence, uh, Brian Brushwood, he, we were high school buddies. I got him into magic and uh, he went to college. He was a grade older than me. And he came back and he says, dude, we should be doing restaurants. I had somebody had me sub. And so I had this wonderful summer after my senior year in high school where we I uh, drummed up five nights of, of strolling magic at restaurants and uh, we didn't work during the day. We performed magic at night, twisted balloon animals for extra tips and everything and swam in pools. It was, it was a wonderful ending of the high school time. So I continued to do that through college, including my first year out of college. I did magic full time. But I, the other thing I did at college is I, I, I fell in love and you know met my spouse. So that ends up changing your plans, too. And she was sure. in Los Angeles. University of Southern California. So I thought that's fine. Certainly go back to the cost of living is very different, you know, and I lost my, uh, my magic hobby instead got into this IT field and working. And it was years later, uh, that, um, uh, by my cousin who's actually living in Houston, his boss was based in LA and he was flying out for an in-person meeting and his boss was a member of the magic castle. 
And he thought of me, you know, and said, hey, I talked to my boss, you can join us, let's go. Well, in the last moment, the boss bailed out completely. So it was just the two of us at the at the Magic Castle. And I was having a great time. It had been a while since I'd been, I'd gone off and on as guests. And a magician member said, why are you not a member? And he put me up to it, you know? And so I, uh, I got on the audition calendar. This was 2014, I was admitted. And I wished I had come back to it sooner, but I've been an enthusiastic member since. Oh, so cool. Awesome. I don't think I could do any magic tricks. I don't even think I know one card trick. So maybe I got to work on that. Hey, is it, how are we going to do, you think either of you could do the rabbit out of the hat? I mean, (laughs) is that really, is that really a thing or is that only in the cartoons, man? People associate pulling rabbit out of the hat and uh, there's not any performances or magicians that do it. Penn and Teller talk about that and they have a routine with pulling rabbit out of the hat that's, uh, I've seen Goldfinger and Dove do that. Many different acts, they do do that, but that's more of the iconic. It's what yeah. we yeah. envision in our minds. Yeah. No, I because that's one of the things I think about is the rabbit in the hat or the, the box with all the swords in it, yeah. you know, and then the guy gets, or where they cut the woman in half, right? Cut the box in half, so. Yes. Well, hey, guys, we're coming up on our time. I really appreciate you guys doing this. Whenever all of this crazy stuff is over, the three of us have got to go to the Magic Castle together and, and uh, check it out. You're Absolutely. on. Um, would love to do that. I guess my last question for you guys, and I know it's a trick question during this unprecedented time, and we just found out, of course, now that there's a 10 o'clock curfew. So I imagine who knows what the answer is. But, uh, Brad, what are you doing this weekend? Actually, I'm going out to Bo- out to Beaumont. Uh, a friend of mine, he bought a new house, and I've designed a wall feature, and it's a protruding box, and it goes floor to ceiling, and out of that box will come projecting out like a floating shelf for his audio and video equipment, things like that. So I'm looking forward to that project. Now, is it possible that your friend's going to get in there and you're going to cut the box in half, or is that like mixing business with pleasure? In case he's watching, I don't want to give him a heads up. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Gordon, what about you? What are you doing this weekend? Well, uh, my wife, Jen, who's the the filmmaker in, in our family, she actually is teaching, and I'm drawing a blank on what it's called, and that's terrible, but uh, they teach uh, different creative services to people in the industry. So she's going to have an all-day class on Saturday teaching story development, sitting right here in this chair. And so okay. what I'm going to do is take advantage. I've looked at the weather. I'm going to set up the tent in the backyard with the boys, and we're going to be having, uh, you know, a a faux camp out, enjoying what's what's uh, the last of the you know good weather where it's cool enough to be in a bag at night, but warm enough to not be too uh, too cold. And so, uh, oh, and the other shout out I'll give, you know, I'll plug something if you'll permit me, Tom. Absolutely. Is, uh, one of my wife's films, which is based, uh, it's a sort of extrapolation of a true story from an L.A. native. It's called Quality Problems. You can find it everywhere. But if you have Amazon Prime, you can just stream it there for uh, for your Amazon Prime uh, membership there. So uh, Quality Problems. All right. An adult comedy about cancer. <laughs> All right. Quality Problems, everybody. Check it out. Coming, coming to you from Amazon Prime. Uh, Brad, I forgot to ask. Is there anything you want to mention, Plug? Not a trick question. (laughs) Well, (laughs) when we were talking previously, I couldn't resist. Um, Magic Castle, as we all know, is closed because social distancing and whatnot. However, they still do food services, so you could order and pick up. So 
I didn't realize that. And they surprised the heck out of me because when I did my first oh, order, no. I got the, the actual game and I'm looking forward to this pandemic being over so I could actually have someone to play it with. To play it with. Yeah. <laughs> now are they just magic castle is only serving uh, like food to their members, right? Like other listeners could not, it's anybody. Anybody for the food. When the castle's open, admittance is members only, but the food is wide open. Okay. Can you guys tell us a little bit more about that? So if our listeners want to uh, support the business, how would, how would they how would they do that? Uh, they go to the magiccastle.com and they have this section. It's pretty self-explanatory as far as uh, placing orders. Uh, you place the order, you pay for it, you go there and pick it up and it's contactless. I mean, I rolled down my back window and they put it in over and done with. The other thing uh, I've looked at, we're actually doing it for Thanksgiving um, this year, is they have both hot, you know, prepared items that you just can, it's like get food to go, but they also have um, cooking boxes, you know, like, like is kind of the rage where you can get a bunch of, you know, restaurant sourced fresh ingredients and, and vegetables and meats and do your own cooking at home. So you can go either route, prepared food or get a box to then make the meal yourself. Very like cool. It's like kind of pre-cut and all that, right? You assemble it yourself. Yes. So. Yeah, so they do need some support, of course, because they're um, not only are they normally not even open to the public, but they've they've got no, nothing coming in. So, oh, and you the can get alcohol too. You can get cocktails to go. That's right, but do not do that before <laughs> trying tricks with knives and boxes, because that could lead to unpredictable <laughs> results. So you can go to the Academy of Musical of the Magical Arts rather at MagicCastle.com. Um, cool. all right. Well, Brad, Gordon, thank you so much, guys. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad you guys got a chance to meet each other and, um, you know, we'll do this all in person soon and, uh, have ourselves a little magic contest. So thanks a lot. I know you guys are busy. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, to all our listeners, thanks for dialing in and joining us for fresh tech Fridays. Hope everybody has a great weekend. And for now we're signing off. Have a great weekend, everybody. All right. Thank, thank you. you, Tom. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music, RSPE, and especially Russ for help with some engineering and equipment, Dell Technologies for helping sponsor some episodes of the podcast, Kayla Robeson, DZ Solutions Marketing Director for helping make this all possible, and last but not least, our fearless audio engineer, Jeff Rockland engineering from afar. If you want to learn more about Jeff and his projects, I encourage you to check out his Relief Valve podcast that you can find wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again and see you next time.